Hello, ladies and gentlemen of the listening audience. My name is Maurice Selby, MD, and I bring to you the Health in Harlem podcast. And uh, thank you all out there for uh, listening to this podcast. And uh, one, I just want to apologize out front for taking so long to get another episode to you all. Um, Again, this is sort of a new endeavor for Health in Harlem and uh, definitely want to continue to bring you some great information and great programming. And uh, just please bear with us um, as we get the hang of this new medium. But I'm definitely excited to bring some more information to you all. And um, thank you for those that checked out the first episode of the official Health in Harlem podcast. Um, So we're going to jump right in, ladies and gentlemen. And tonight's topic actually starts with a story about the bathtub and really just going back and just looking at the history of the bathtub. And essentially, the modern bathtub was invented by a British aristocrat named Lord John Russell in 1828. And by 1835, he was pretty much the only man in England that bathed uh, every day or consistently. First bathtub in the United States was installed in Cincinnati, Ohio. It was lined with uh, lead and actually weighed approximately 1,750 pounds. So 1,750 pounds. And it wasn't until President Millard Fillmore had one installed in the White House in 1851 that it became a commonplace uh, fixture in American households. And this indeed led to a fair amount of controversy as opponents made much, uh, and this is quote, opponents made much of the fact that there was no bathtub at Mount Vernon or at Monticello and that all the presidents and other magnificos of the past had got along without any such monarchical luxuries. Uh, And this is actually uh, from the words of H.L. Mencken, who actually published this history of the bathtub. Uh, in 1917. Uh, But it continues on. And uh, in April uh, 23rd, on April 23rd of 1843, in an issue of the Western Medical Repository, physicians raised concerns over the bathtub um, and really looked at it as posing a risk to the health of the public, um, as it was proposed that it can cause rheumatic fevers, inflammation of the lungs, and a whole category of zygomatic, zygomatic diseases. By 1859, a majority of the medical establishment regarded the bathtub as harmless to health and with only 20% concluding that the bathtub was indeed uh, of benefit to those that use them. And it wasn't long before Philadelphia and Boston moved to outlaw bathing based on those concerns. Okay, okay, okay. Now I have to stop us right there. I have to stop immediately. Um... (laughs) Stop everybody out there listening. Let's scrub that from our memories, right? This is a completely false account. Don't believe what you just heard. Don't retweet it. Don't store any of the aforementioned facts in some deep silo in your brain to be resurrected um, at some trivia night at your local bar. Don't tell your boy in the corner. Everything I said is essentially false, completely false. Um, So erase that from your brains, please. Um, bathing is absolutely essential to the maintenance of good health, right? We are strong proponents of that uh, on health in Harlem. And I strongly encourage everyone listening to continue to bathe as you normally do. Please, at least for your family and friends and those close to you, uh, literally close to you, if not for yourself. Now, moving on, 
um, that history, quote unquote, history of the bathtub uh, was adapted from an article that was published by H.L. Mencken on December 28, 1917, in the New York Evening Mail. And the article was titled A Neglected History. Um, and essentially, um, it was found to be completely false. Actually, eight years after publishing that article um, or story, if you will, Mencken admitted that this story was completely false. And he actually wrote it as lighthearted entertainment during the jury times of World War One, and also to illustrate um, just how fast lies can spread. And he actually expressed alarm later on, um, even decades later, at the influence that the article had amongst the general public and specifically in the medical community. Um, and he was disturbed to see his quote unquote preposterous facts cited by medical men in learned journals. And now, decades after the article was written and even after being completely debunked by Mencken himself, the article continued to be referenced as fact. As late as 2001, the Washington Post called facts, quote unquote, facts from Mencken's article in a real estate article that was featured in their publication. Now, in those days, it was common for newspapers to reprint articles and stories featured in other publications. And just as now, popular articles were shared and reprinted over and over again. Thus, Mencken's article essentially went viral, despite the fact that it was pure bunk. Fast forward to 2020, with the 24 hours news cycle, the entertainment media that's all around us, and finally social media, a Mencken level tale can be spread across every continent to millions of people within minutes. Can you imagine people foregoing their daily bath or shower in protest of the bathtub's tendency to cause disease and social divides? Let's table that thought experiment for a moment. There's nothing new about misinformation. We've seen the controversies surrounding fake news. We've seen the political ramifications. Uh, we've seen people that made a lot of money off of this. We've seen a lot of people that lost a lot of money. Um, often misinformation. But we also see this problem uh, in healthcare, in medicine. And medical misinformation, although not a new problem, is certainly something that is a big deal at this time. It is a problem that not only frustrates our battle with acute, chronic, and infectious disease, but again, often exacerbate those problems. Now, I have to stop for a second because I want to backtrack and say that we are very fortunate to live in the information age as we have information at our fingertips at all times. And I remember those days going to the library when I was younger, having to look up the encyclopedia, look for the letter, right, and trying to gather information that way. Um, and it's just so convenient, so different now um, to have all this information at our disposal where we can theoretically look up and learn um, just about anything. Uh, but one thing that we really need to understand in this environment, in this world today, um, is that not all information is created equal, especially when it comes to the truthfulness and validity of that information. There is a lot of stuff out there nowadays that is completely false. 
um, and misinformation is rampant these days. And this is especially the case when it comes to the information on health education uh, and healthy living and well-being. According to the Pew Research Center's Internet in American Life Project, 80% of Internet users, that's 93 million Americans, have searched for a health-related topic online, a 62% increase from users that searched for similar information in 2001. And this was a study that was conducted in 2013. In a 2017 survey of participants in Facebook health communities, that was done by WEGO Health, 87% of respondents said they shared health information through public Facebook posts, and there was another 81% that shared information through private messages. Now, this is not a bad thing, right? To research health conditions, to educate oneself on healthy living, to educate one oneself on how to manage a particular acute or even chronic illness, that is something that we do not discourage. That is something that um, I encourage my patients to do. That is something that we encourage our listening audience to do on Health in Harlem. And generally, um, this is the reason why the Internet exists, right? To get information um, that we can use for our best interests in our daily lives. We want you to be able to uh, enable practices, right, that help you avoid high blood pressure and diabetes and lower your risk for heart disease and heart attacks, um, lower your cancer risk. We want you to live an active and healthy lifestyle and be able to learn how to prevent yourself from being injured. And it's certainly not a bad thing to share that information, right? If you've learned something that you think is useful and that you think uh, is part of a healthy lifestyle, um, if anything, we encourage you to share that information. That's something that uh, on Health in Harlem uh, each and every week for the past 14 years, that was the one thing that we always asked of our listening audience at the end of each program is that, hey, you learn something that you think is useful tonight, um, that you can apply to your life and that is uh, compatible with a healthy lifestyle. We want you to share that information. There is absolutely no problem with that. This becomes problematic when the information one is being presented is completely false. Right. And let's go back to the bathtubs, right? Bathtubs uh, being the cause of disease when, in fact, it is crucial to hygiene, maintenance and prevention of many diseases and really just uh, crucial to healthy relationships because nobody wants to be around you if you haven't bathed in a while. Uh, but also uh, most alarming is that, you know, misinformation and this is information that might have some sort of factual basis. However, it is presented in a way that is not completely accurate or in a way that misleads people. And most alarming of all is uh, the observed trends of lies and misinformation spreading faster than the truth in today's age. Researchers from the Massachusetts Institute of Technology analyzed a set of 126,000 news stories on Twitter from 2006 to 2017, and they found that more people tweeted information, false information, than true information. And they've reasoned that people may have passed on the fake or misleading news more than the true news because of the novel novelty of the information and the possibility that such stories evoked more emotion. Now, whatever the reason, one thing that we, we must take home from tonight's program ladies and gentlemen, is that we must be aware that for every shred of good, 
reliable information out there. There is much more bad information. Now, this program is not just about informing you about the problems surrounding medical misinformation, but mainly our job tonight is essentially establishing how we can safeguard ourselves against it and seek out and find reliable and accurate health information that we can use to make informed decisions about our health. I remember reading about the antiviral and immunomodulatory effects of chloroquine that came out of China in the early weeks of the SARS-CoV-2 outbreak. And with cytokine storm, which is a sort of ramping up of the immune system, uh, this was essentially implicated as one of the main mechanisms by which COVID-19 patients worsened. It was thought that chloroquine's suppression of certain aspects of the immune system especially a molecule called interleukin-6, that this could be beneficial in patients with severe disease. It had been shown to have antiviral properties as well in various animal models infected with influenza and SARS-CoV-1, uh, the original virus from the SARS outbreak of 2003. The Guangdong Provincial Health Commission previously submitted an expert consensus report that recommended treatment with chloroquine in patients diagnosed with coronavirus pneumonia. Now, around the same time that this is happening, an article appears on the web. I'm giving away my age here, right? The web, um, the internet, AKA the internet for all of those out there, um, or the World Wide web, right? Going way back. Uh, but it was on March 13th, 2020, and the document was titled, An Effective Treatment for Coronavirus. In parentheses, it said COVID-19. At first glance, the documents appeared to be a research publication or soon-to-be-submitted manuscript. Beneath the title line, it detailed a byline that said, in consultation with researchers from Stanford, the University of Alabama at Birmingham, and the National Academy of Sciences. The article was published by James Todari, MD, and Gregory Regano, Esquire. Three days later, three days after that, Elon Musk tweets, maybe worth something considering chloroquine for C-19. And he posts the link to the Regano Google Doc, and the document is spread to Musk's greater than 30 million followers. Meanwhile, in the village of Kiryas Joel in New York, Dr. Vladimir Zelenko, a self-described, quote, simple country doctor, uh, unquote, treated a number of his patients with symptoms consistent with COVID-19. And when it appeared that his therapy was working and his regimen uh, was hydroxychloroquine, azithromycin, and zinc sulfate, uh, when it appeared that this therapy was working for his patients, Dr. Zelenko immediately posted a video on YouTube and Facebook touting tremendous positive results. And he actually uh, uh, did this with the intention of getting the attention 
of our president of the United States. And it wasn't too long before President Trump picked up on these reports and began promoting the use of hydroxychloroquine as, quote, the biggest game changer in the history of medicine. And with that said, the rest is indeed history. Now, there were certainly trials investigating the efficacy, aka the effectiveness of chloroquine in the treatment of COVID-19. However, the series of events catapulted hydroxychloroquine from express but cautious investigations, right? And this includes large multi-center randomized placebo-controlled trials, um, essentially catapulted it to an FDA emergency use authorization, and thus the drug being treated, uh, being in such large demand that shortages of this medication were experienced nationwide. Hospital systems began reserving the medication for coronavirus patients and essentially depriving patients with autoimmune conditions such as lupus and rheumatoid arthritis, um, in which hydroxychloroquine effectiveness and safety uh, was much better documented and established as a useful therapy for those type of patients. And on our last episode, Five COVID Facts, we actually discussed uh, the research findings that hydroxychloroquine uh, in COVID-19 patients was associated with increased risk of adverse events. Now, just as a disclaimer, hydroxychloroquine, uh, to a certain extent, is still under investigation as far as its efficacy uh, and safety in patients with uh, severe cases of COVID-19. But just going back a couple of weeks ago, and I remember being desperate, right, as a clinician taking care of patients with this disease and really running out of options. And this was something that we looked to to see if we can make patients better. Um, And just as uh, patients were desperate, families were desperate to see improvement in these patients, we too, being in the front lines and taking care of these individuals, we too were desperate. And it just shows uh, this series of events, right? Uh, This combination of uh, actual medical data being generated in reputed and uh, respected journals, the false information such as that Google doc that was posted, uh, which had no basis in and no scientific backing to that. And then finally, the misinformation uh, being propagated through social media and really by some high level figures. This really just shows how much of a problem this is. And really what it what it ultimately shows is that this is something, ladies and gentlemen, a problem that really starts at the top. And it starts with the most prestigious medical journals and goes all the way down to the masses consuming the 24-hour news cycle and social media feeds. And essentially, no one is shielded or immune from this. Thus, we need strategies to help safeguard ourselves against this problem. So yes, indeed, the problem starts at the top. And there will be no finger pointing here regarding this problem with medical misinformation as the medical and scientific community are certain part of, certainly part of the problem. In 2005, John P.A. Ioannidis of Stanford University published an article titled, Why Most Published Research Findings Are False. And in it, Dr. Ioannidis lays out reasoning that much of the research and specifically biomedical and health research that was 
uh, done um, in that time and even today is false, right? Underpowered studies, uh, basically the power of a study is the probability that a particular research study will detect a difference uh, between the experimental and control groups, right? So it's the probability that a difference um, will be detected if in, in fact does exist between the experimental uh, and a control group. Poor research methodologies and biases in scientific research, including researcher and publication bias, can lead to results in findings that are false. And even when true, certain conclusions that are drawn uh, from various research can be misleading and or misinterpreted depending on one's bias or frame of reference. And according to Richard Horton, a former editor of The Lancet, the case against science is straightforward, right? Quote, much of the scientific literature, perhaps half, may simply be untrue. Afflicted by studies with small sample sizes, therefore affecting that power concept that we talked about, that power number, tiny effects, invalid exploratory analyses, and flagrant conflict of interest together with an obsession for pursuing fashionable trends of dubious significance, science has taken a turn towards darkness, unquote. This, I agree, it sounds terrible, right? And with that said, one can see where the skepticism of medical science comes into play. In fact, I'm skeptical too. Uh, and many clinicians uh, that are dedicated to providing the best patient care, that are dedicated to um, educating patients in the community about healthy living and well-being, we're skeptical too. In fact, that was the whole point of Ioannidis' article, was to be skeptical and critical of scientific research from the inception of hypothesis formation to testing hypotheses or experimenting, even when analyzing and interpreting the results. There must be a certain level of critical analysis and skepticism to ensure that the findings of any research study or endeavor are true, even down to the biases and potential conflict of interest of the researchers. And now, in the medical and scientific communities, we are aware of the aforementioned problems. And there are steps that have been taken, such as registration of all clinical trials, researchers being forthcoming about possible conflicts of interest, studies listing limitations of their research methodology and statistical analyses. And there are many innovations that are being done at the technological level to help reduce the influence of human factors in the production and analysis of research data. Also, public policy is and is going to be instrumental in dealing with these problems as regulations of major stakeholders in research that stand to gain monetarily uh, from published research, right? Examples, pharmaceutical companies, the medical equipment manufacturers, insurance companies, etc. cetera. Uh, this can help ensure that financial conflicts of interest don't have as much influence on scientists' behavior and the results of their research. Is this a perfect solution? Definitely not. But we are definitely taking steps to address this issue. And the fact of the matter is that there is still some good science being done out there. And that will allow us to come to more reliable 
and useful conclusions. And I apologize for those text message pings in the background, ladies and gentlemen. I feel like such a rookie at this. And I swear, from this point on, you will never, ever hear that again in any future Health in Harlem podcast. Now, moveon.com. The anti-science climate that we are currently experiencing that dismisses data and expertise and that points to the problems mentioned above as their reasoning for doing so is where we begin to see problems arise. It's when they propose policies and make decisions that fly in the face of conclusions that are derived from good science and reliable conclusions. This is where problems can can really begin to take root. And this is often uh, leaves medical science open to criticism, especially from ideologues and conspiracy theorists. While their criticisms are often valid in the context of what we previously discussed res- regarding research results and conclusions of a good amount of scientific research, there is no question as to the value of medical science and its potential to help people. When we look at the development of vaccinations, treatments for heart disease and stroke, treatment of conditions such as sepsis and trauma, the public health measures that are based on epidemiological studies and models that that, uh, result in decreases in morbidity and mortality from various disease entities, we see that the medical sciences are indispensable. Dr. Stephen Novella, an academic clinical neurologist at Yale University School of Medicine and the host of the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe podcast and also the author of the Neurological Blog, um, said as follows, the problem with conspiracy mongering is that it is often not constructive. There is no call to action just the sense that the world is hopelessly corrupt. Contrast that with the fact that we in the health and biological sciences are aware of these problems and we are actively as a community taking steps to deal with these issues. And we have made some progress slowly, but there is certainly progress being made each and every day. As we move into medical misinformation in the general public, we must next examine the media. And this includes not just the news media, but entertainment media, including television shows and, of course, social media. Now, again, it starts from the top. It's pretty much daily where we see the next weight loss miracle being touted, the news media outlet citing studies proclaiming the benefits of drinking coffee or wine daily. We've even seen the reports talking about eating dark chocolate and that lengthening lives and reducing the risk of heart disease. 
We've learned about campaigns against vaccination, even campaigns for vaccination, and the personal stories and troubles of parents and their concerns over making these decisions. Now remember, again, it starts from the top. And if we go back to Andrew Wakefield's 1998 study linking, quote unquote, the measles, mumps, and rubella vaccine to enterocolitis and repressive autism, uh, this first appeared in The Lancet, right? A, a very well-respected medical journal. In retrospect, all of the problems plaguing scientific research that we discussed were notable in Wakefield's work. The study only consisted of 12 children. It was noted that five of the children had developmental problems prior to the study being conducted, while it was formally documented um, in the actual research paper that all of the children were previously normal. Despite many other limitations and red flags suggesting that Dr. Wakefield's conclusions might not have been uh, completely sound, the findings were trumpeted throughout the world and appropriately parents, caregivers of children, and even physicians alike expressed concern and reservations with regard to the MMR vaccine. Can you blame them? I don't think you can. And fortunately, former Dr. Wakefield's results could not be replicated, and there have been dozens of studies done since that have established the safety and efficacy, uh, including results that show there is no established correlation between vaccination and autism. The MMR vaccine and many other vaccines in the 22 years since the publication of that article um, are still under fire. Right? We are still seeing the fallout from this study when it comes to vaccination rates, parents expressing concern over the safety of other vaccines, and a general mistrust of the medical establishment as a whole. And this results not just from the published article itself, but the fact that it was so widespread upon its publication in the mainstream media. And I, I remember... Uh, just hearing about this uh, as a teenager, just sort of this news coming out uh, in the late 90s. And uh, it was it was alarming, even to me as a kid, just hearing through my parents and hearing on the news uh, that th these were the, the findings of Dr. Wakefield's work. Uh, that was concerning. But never was it mentioned some of the limitations uh, that we've acknowledged in retrospect, right? This small number of patients, uh, sort of the subjectiveness of some of those findings and even uh, some of the problems down the line as far as uh, Dr. Wakefield's motivations uh, in that study. Uh, these things just weren't brought to light at the time that they were reported on in the mainstream media. Now, ultimately, that article was formally retracted from the Lancet, Lancet many years later. Uh, but still, uh, that article holds sway with many parents out there and individuals uh, that are steadfast against vaccinating uh, children, right? They still hold on to that article, uh, which is essentially misinformation at this point. And this is a problem with other retracted studies as they can still carry significant influence. They can even continue to be accessible through various internet databases and are sometimes continually cited in other articles and, of course, in the media.
And unfortunately, there isn't much that we can do about that. Uh, what we see appearing on our nightly news broadcasts and what is published in newspapers and magazines and online news media outlets, these types of stories are reported on by different professionals, with most reporters being journalists that are trained in reporting scientific and health news. Occasionally, there are physicians, nurses, scientists that report on these topics. However, how these studies are interpreted and reported on makes a big difference in how people will act based on the information. And unfortunately, the limitations of these studies are not always commented on. And so what we're left with is an incomplete picture of such studies, and therefore the conclusions are limited. I mean, I can't recall a time, right, when watching the nightly news or sort of the daytime news programs that we see, um, I can't remember sample size and power being mentioned uh, when these stories regarding scientific research break. And I don't recall ever hearing about conflicts of interest being disclosed when it comes to various studies being reported on in the news media. In 2006, Steve Wallachin and Lisa M. Schwartz, both co-directors of the Center for Medicine and Media at the Dartmouth Institute, published an article in the Medical Journal of Australia that evaluated how the mainstream media covered scientific meetings such as the annual sessions of the American Heart Association, the International Age Conference, the American Society of Clinical Oncology, etc. Right? And in it, doctors Swartz and Wallachin found that in many media reports, both in print media and broadcast media, the preliminary nature of such studies, as well as limitations regarding study design, subject type, for instance, right, whether these studies involved animals or actual human beings, and whether or not the information had been peer-reviewed or not, these things were not mentioned in many of those reports. If anything, the findings and conclusions of the studies were often sensationalized, and of course, the public sees these reports and begins to act on them. Thus, we must do, what we must do, is remember to take these reports and their recommendations with a grain of salt, always. And finally, we do have some tips on how to read and digest science news. And this was actually adapted from uh, PBS's It's Okay to Be Smart. And what we want to do initially is to uh, look at the headline, right? Is the headline to the article sort of phrased as a question? Because this implies that the, the question hasn't been fully answered, right? This might be that preliminary research that is not peer-reviewed and that is not generalizable. Right. And it might uh, be be fraught with all sorts of limitations. And with that said, it is basically wise to just skip the headline. Right. Don't bother with it at all. Whatever uh, declarations it makes or proclamations as far as this latest cure uh, for whatever disease or advances. Just skip the headline. Right. Uh, look at certain key things that maybe grab your attention, but really don't bother to take or, or uh, make conclusions based on the headline. Is the article a press release or is this an actual report of journalism, uh, of a journalism article, right? And essentially what you're looking for, looking at with an article is that um, a journalistic article, right? A journalism report has been fact-checked and has references to data and that it is balanced in its reporting of news, 
Or do you see a sales pitch, essentially? There are many articles, quote unquote, articles in the mainstream media and online that look like news articles or news broadcasts, but they are actually press releases and therefore advertisements for goods and services. So do your research, look for keywords, right? Um, uh, there, look for a link or correlation, association, possibility. Uh, these key words, right, um, are essentially saying that this stuff isn't fully worked out yet. Um, and thus, when you see anything that says there's a new ab enhancing cream, right, baffling scientists, you're probably better off moving on <laughs> if you're looking for real science news, because that sounds like a sales pitch to me. Something is coming. Somebody's trying to sell you something there. The next question you want to ask is, is the scientific method applied? Are there details regarding the research being presented, uh, such as whether it has been peer reviewed? Do they report on the credentials of the researchers? Was the information or the article presented at a conference or was it published in a journal? Or was it just someone reporting, quote unquote, research findings on YouTube? <laughs> All right. Or were some random Google doc that appears online uh, <laughs> declaring the uh, efficacy of hydroxychloroquine, right? 100% efficacy. Sounds sketchy. Um, and you should question that, right? That That is something that should ring a bell and say, hey, this might not be reliable information for me to make decisions based on. Does someone stand to gain financially from you reading the article? Basically, what this boils down to is whether someone is trying to sell you something or inform you. Ads are placed in reputable news publications and on broadcast media. But is the aim of that article to sell you on something or to inform you? That's the major question there. The next thing that you got to look for, is this actual journalism? Did the reporter do some footwork on getting the information? Are there quotes from the researcher? Are there quotes from people other than the researchers that offer another perspective or another interpretation of the data? Can these people break the information down for you uh, so that you can apply a critical lens to the information, right? That is a big deal. Um, really just being able to sort of uh, determine uh, for yourself what this all means as far as the data that's being presented and what it really means for yourself. And is it a news or a sensationalism? Are we curing cancer in mice or are we talking about the effects of diet and exercise on mental illness? Right. Two very different questions, two very different uh, research populations. Um, not all of the findings in animals are going to be applicable to humans. Right. And that's where we see some of these sensationalist headlines declaring a cure for various ailments when, in fact, this was just very preliminary research um, and at the most basic level, starting uh, with animals. And then finally, look for some commonly held beliefs and stereotypes. Be wary of the article or report that says obesity is linked to a sedentary lifestyle. Right. Because does this mean that all overweight people uh, and obese people are lazy? Perhaps they are depressed and therefore don't have physical or mental energy to engage in active lifestyles, right? Such articles can lead to bias and preconceived notions about people um, and especially people with certain medical conditions. And also we need to look out for those reports that challenge previous, previously held notions or beliefs. And finally, your best bet 
is to just approach all news media reports with both both curiosity and skepticism, um, as this is this is healthy in making sure that we are able to digest and properly use the information that we're being presented with. So, ladies and gentlemen, I saved the best for last, and one can argue that the advent of social media is among the greatest developments in human history. We can socialize with it and connect with those around us, even those that are thousands of miles away. We use it for networking and even for working. We can share ideas and learn from one another, and we have seen the power of social media impact all aspects of daily life from having local roads repaired to electing our political leaders, allocation of investments and resources during disaster situations, and bringing attention to issues that impact all of us, including things like climate change. On the other hand, just as with other forms of communication, social media can be corrupted with false and misinformation. Now, let's skip the villainous snake oil peddlers looking to capitalize on our fears, our insecurities and misconceptions. Those folks are out there and we know that they're trying to take advantage of us. And oftentimes they can be easy to spot. Right. The dude with the long, wiry mustache with the curls at the tip and a top hat and that toothy grin. Or they can even look like Pepper Potts with a Tony Stark-esque confidence and shiny, alluring bottles containing potions that are promised to cure every malady in your life if you're willing to put your money where your misconceptions are. Or it could be Raheem next door. Who knows, right? It could be anybody. Uh, But usually we can kind of see through uh, those screens and see what people are really up to and and those that are trying to take advantage of us. What I really want us to think about um, and focus on is each other especially when it comes to social media. And this is where you might get a lot of the bunk and false and misinformation that we've been talking about up to this point. Now, perhaps what you saw was that impassioned plea or call to action that you received from a friend or family member. And the fact that it's coming from a person close to you makes you more likely to take it seriously. And if you take it seriously, you might even share that post and the information within it and call others to action. It might even be someone with similar characteristics or something in common with you. Maybe they're in a similar situation as yourself. It can even be a celebrity hitting you up. The power in this cannot be overstated. And while there is definitely a problem with the infrastructure itself, right? These algorithms uh, that these social media sites and companies use to um, either upregulate the sharing or downregulate the sharing of, of different posts, right? The bots, the weight of influencers themselves that uh, sort of share and perpetuate this information, um, you know, regardless of that infrastructure that allows false and misleading information to spread wider and faster than the truth, it's actually us, right? It's we as individuals that are a major factor in determining what information spreads and what languages 
on one's page and is never shared beyond the individual that conceived it. Now, if we go back to that study that we mentioned by Sarush Bosogi et al., false news reach more people than the truth. And they concluded that the degree of novelty and the emotional reactions uh, one might have to a particular uh, set of information that they're exposed to, that might be responsible uh, for what we're seeing as far as the spread of this type of information. And um, as the intervention of things like bots accelerated the spread of false and true and true news at the same rate, right? This is even more so the case where it's actually us that is um, actually contributing to this problem. And so we have to essentially modify our behavior, right? How we interact with this type of information. And once we're exposed to it, what we do with it, whether we are going to share this with others around us or whether it's something that um, we will not share and therefore not perpetuate. And uh, just as a word of caution, though, they did explicitly state in that study that more research is needed in this area, right, before we can derive any definitive conclusion. So that goes back to what we said before. It starts at the top. Um, it starts at the top where we're generating this information. And um, we do need more information before we know all of the factors that are involved in the spread of misinformation and false information uh, throughout social media. So now I know there's somebody out there saying, hey, right, isn't this the purpose of the platforms, right? Isn't this the purpose of social media, the Facebooks, the Twitters uh, that are out there, LinkedIn, right, is to share information. That's one of the uh, benefits, right? One of the major benefits that we can enjoy in using uh, these platforms. And one thing that I want to get across for sure is that I don't want to vilify those that share information on social media and other online mediums. I truly believe that the vast majority of individuals are sharing information and resources in earnest. And it has been noted in the literature that social media can be a source of great peer support and connection in individuals coping with and dealing with various health conditions and challenges whether it's dealing with a new diagnosis, pregnancy, and women's health-related issues, or overcoming addiction. However, we must be sure that we're sharing what we're sharing is valid, that it's reliable and useful information. And so ultimately, the question becomes, how do we deal with this onslaught of posts and links and video appeals to your sensibilities and values? Well, thankfully, the National Institutes of Health has put together a guide that is available online with tips on how to evaluate health information online. And some key points to be aware of include the fact that any website, right, especially those dispensing medical and health information and advice, should make information concerning who is responsible for the site and its content easily accessible. If the individuals responsible for the site did not write the material contained on the site themselves, they should clearly disclose the original source of the material on their website. And any health-related website should also display the credentials of the individuals who have prepared or reviewed the information on that site. And any site that asks you for information should specify what they plan to do with that information. 
In addition to that, when you encounter information on the internet, it is recommended that you first pause and begin to pose a series of questions to yourself right before uh, engaging and acting on that information. So I promised you right at the outset of the program that we were not going to leave you hanging um, and just disclosing and really looking at the problem with false and misinformation. But we are here to provide some solutions and, and uh, strategies to help you deal with this problem out there and really to help us all as a whole as we combat this all around us. And so those questions are the following, right? Who pays for the site? It takes money to operate a website and the source of the website's funding should clearly be stated or readily available or apparent looking at the, the site itself, right? Sometimes looking at the URL, right? The ending of the URL of the site can give us hints. So for instance, .gov.gov, uh, that means that you're dealing with some governmental organization, right? This is probably some information that uh, will be actually reliable and accurate because that is the job of the government to provide us with reliable and accurate information. Uh, that information can change from time to time, right? As things evolve, looking at, for instance, the COVID-19 uh, crisis, we've seen some changes in recommendations, but that's because this is a new disease that we're dealing with and we're discovering and learning new things about this illness daily. So things do change. Um, we're going to talk about that um, with some other tips going forward. Uh, but .org or .org, that is for non-commercial entities. And finally, .com is for commercial enterprises, right? And funding can certainly determine the content featured um, on an organization's website, but it can also uh, influence how that content is presented. And finally, uh, it will influence what the intentions are for the owner of that website, right? So who pays for the site? Uh, major question to be asked there. The next thing that you want to think about is what is the website's purpose? The individual or individuals that run the website along with its funding sources determine the purpose of the site. You can typically find out the purpose of the site by checking out its about page. Right? And this page should clearly state the purpose of the site and therefore help you determine the trustworthiness and reliability of the site's content. Now, be mindful that there are many legitimate sites that sell medical and health related products and that the owner's desire to sell or promote these products can certainly influence the accuracy of the information that is presented to you and even how that information is presented to you. Think of Pepper Potts again, right? Go back to Pepper Potts and her pearly pills. You like my alliteration, right? Beautiful. Uh, but think about the promise, right, that the pills will maximize beauty. The owner of that glop site, just using that for fun, uh, that glop website knows that she makes a pretty penny, more alliteration, from the sale of those overpriced products. And so almost any claim will be made to ensure that you purchase that product or something else featured on the site. I mean, that's that's just it. This is, you know, marketing. There might be some shreds of advice in there, some shreds of information that you might be able to use that is reliable and accurate um, and that you can make some good decisions based off of. But for the most part, they're trying to sell you product. Right. And you have to keep that in mind as you uh, look through that information and interpret that information. The next question that you must ask yourself is how current is the information on the website? Citing old dated research and information, especially this day and age where new discoveries are being made constantly and what we know is changing so rapidly, 
even the difference of a few years can make a big difference, right? So even if information on a particular site has not changed in some time, it should be noted somewhere that the information has been reviewed recently to ensure that the information is still valid. And this is exactly what we kind of mentioned uh, a little bit ago in that um, with this crisis that we're dealing with, with the outbreak, information is changing very rapidly. And so those uh, government sites that we look to and that are really encourage us to get a lot of our information regarding this illness from, uh, those sites are updated regularly, right? And they even post and tell you when it was last updated. And so this is what we need to be looking at with all of the information that we take in regarding uh, medicine and health and fitness and wellness. Um, we really should be taking that into account, right? Uh, when was this information last updated? How current is the information? The, for number four, what we need to ask is how does the website owner choose links to other sites? Do other sites pay the owner to have the links appear on their site? Is there a certain criteria that has to be met for links to be posted on that website? Um, right? Are there any conflicts of interest that might be uh, sort of underlying um, that could strongly influence the amount, the information that's presented and how accurate and reliable that information is. Knowing these details can help you understand the purpose of the site, a site about mesothelioma that has a bunch of links to law firms might not truly serve the noble purpose of educating the public on that particular illness, right? They're trying to get lawsuits, right, to act on and make money off of. So just being mindful of uh, really those links that are, are um, you know, what they're taking you to and what their motive is and why those links are there. We got to think about that. Next question, you must ask yourself, what information about users does the website collect and why are certain details about which links you click or the amount of, and types of supplements you buy, right? Is this stuff being collected? Are these tidbits of information going to be shared with other companies or people? Sometimes some personal identifier information is collected and used for various purposes. So be sure to read the privacy policies and disclosures about your information, um, about why your information is collected and how it is used by the site, especially if the site outrightly asks you for information. And this could be in the form of subscribership, right? Asking you to become a subscriber to the site or just asking you uh, for emails for uh, so that they can send you newsletters and stuff. They're collecting information from you and it is going to be used for some purpose. So really getting an idea as to what that information will be used for, um, again, can clue you into what, it, what is the purpose of the site and also can also uh, help you determine how reliable the information you're presented with is. Next, how does the site manage interactions with users? There should always be a way for users and visitors to contact the website owner with concerns about problems or for feedback or to ask questions. The terms of service of using any chat rooms or discussion boards should be explained, such as whether or not anyone moderates those discussions, right? Especially, and this is very important, um, as there should be some statement of what governs the posts or comments that the moderator chooses to display on the site, right? Um, and therefore, what they reject on that site. Um, and, and it's really important to note that because they influence those discussions, right? There, maybe there's a particular health product or uh, something on it that that you're being presented with and negative reviews right in that discussion is kind of not fair right if they have a bunch of positive stuff up there but uh, the negative complaints or the negative reviews 
um, or even flat out real information, right? Somebody posts that there that goes against that particular product, um, then you're not being presented with a, a, a good uh, set of information to make decisions based off of. Uh, so let's look at those discussion boards and figure out what is up there, why it's up there, and who is sort of regulating that. And finally, finally, when it comes to email, carefully evaluate email messages that contain health-related information. Consider the email's origin and purpose. As we all know, some companies use email to promote products and to attract people to their websites. We must be very critical of a company email that promotes a medical product or service without corresponding scientific evidence to back it up. And even if they do, still be wary of what is being presented to you. And if you really need more information, that's when you go to your medical professional um, or, you, you know, you go back and do your own research, which, again, we strongly encourage. But again, we want to get that good, reliable information that we can make informed and good decisions based off of. Oof, okay, we went through a lot just now, ladies and gentlemen, with those uh, tips on how to handle social media posts. And thank God this is a podcast because uh, on our live broadcast from WHCR 90.3 FM, New York, we couldn't rewind in the past. right? So that's the benefit of podcasting. Um, but I will also be posting the show notes so that you could appreciate that. And this way you can peruse those tips and really all the tips tonight. Um, at your own leisure. And so we're about to conclude this podcast episode, ladies and gentlemen. And uh, we will recap by saying, one, take a bath. <laughs> Remember that initial story that we gave uh, from H.L. Mencken was for illustrative purposes. Um, and so we need our listeners to take baths because we need people to be around you and be able to uh, uh, share that information that you learned. I'm just messing around, but yes. Uh, take a bath, right? That was false information. Classic example. And this is a problem that is all around us. And we really need to arm ourselves um, with good, reliable information that we can make informed decisions about our health and well-being in the future and really just find strategies and ways in which we can safeguard ourselves against all of the false and misinformation that is out there. And there is plenty of it. Um, but at the same time, there is a lot of good reliable information out there and we have to sift through all of this stuff to find it and that's it ladies and gentlemen it starts from the top as we said uh, with the medical and scientific communities we are trying our best to work things out um, in that arena and we certainly see it in our news and entertainment media around us so we have to be cognizant of that and really just anytime we're presented with something um, in those mediums, just be aware that, you know, what you're seeing might not fully be reliable. And just to um, always have that sort of critical and, uh, and curious mind at the same time, right? That skeptic, we need that skeptic. We need that curi uh, curious mind in order to properly uh, evaluate all of this information that is before us. And then finally, just looking at social media, right? Before we uh, jump to share something, Let's do our homework. Let's think uh, reasonably and logically and, and really, um, you know, figure out what we're going to share, what we're not going to share, what we're going to pay attention and take heed to um, as this could be the difference between life and death. And I know you've probably seen some reports out there and cases of, of people that have been injured 
uh, by false and misinformation out there, um, especially when we talk about what's going on around us regarding this pandemic. And so that's it, ladies and gentlemen. And I thank all of those out there that are listening to this podcast. And um, I thank you even further in advance for sharing this information with anyone that will listen. And ladies and gentlemen, this is Health in Harlem, the podcast. We do plan to have this show submitted to WHCR to be aired on 90.3 FM, New York, the voice of Harlem at WHCR next week. So uh, be on the lookout for that. But ladies and gentlemen, this show is dedicated to the memory of Miss Gloria Thomas, Harlem and beyond. Take care of yourself.